Professor Dunbar is a leading anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist at Oxford University. Uh, you have more than 25 years of research on how humans form relationships, which is exactly what we want to, look, to talk about today. And you're very famous for Dunbar's number, uh, which we will discuss as part of the seven uh, pillars of friendship. What we want to do uh, in, the, in, in this uh, recording is uh, understand how humans form relationships and provide tangible advice on how people can form these relationships to help them both in their life and their career. So Professor, uh, I really want to discuss today the uh, seven pillars of friendship and how they apply in today's modern society that, that we live in and in the modern work environment that we have today. So the big issue really is how we make and keep uh, our important relationships, important social relationships. And usually, typically, those will consist both of family, extended family and friends. Uh, as it happens, uh, it's very clear if you come from a culture with very big families, you have a bigger extended family, you tend to have fewer friends. And we see that even within places like the United Kingdom, where family sizes are very, very small. People with big families have fewer friends. Uh, but still, uh, the, the, the actual mechanisms involved in creating those friendships really revolve around trust. That's what underpins all these relationships. Now, at one level, just being a member of the same family creates some sense of obligation and trust. Uh, you know, you... It, you know, the family matters, you, must, you mustn't upset the family and all these kind of things. Of course. Otherwise, grandmother will be wagging her finger at you <laughs> by her fireside. Um, <clears throat> but in general, uh, the way we seem to do this is in terms of what we call the seven pillars of friendship, which seems they're like seven dimensions of friendship, a bit like a supermarket barcode. But instead of being printed on our forehead, if you like, we speak them. The things we say because they reflect who we are, the community we belong to, the community we grew up in, and, and our understanding of what it is to be a member of that community. And those seven pillars are essentially speaking the same language, even better still, the same dialect. So you recognize somebody's dialect immediately for the dialect from your village where you grew up. You know, you just know it. Um, they are uh, also include the, the location where you grew up, uh, your career trajectory, um, the kinds of things you do. So we find that, uh, for example, uh, lawyers often have lawyers as friends. Medical people have medical people as friends. Um, and this is because they have a common interest together. That's what forms that, that relationship. Um, uh, the other pillars are having the same hobbies and interests. Do you like football? Do you not like football? <laughs> um, uh, having the same worldview, and worldview is the sort of composite of religious views, political views, moral views. It's how you look at the world and how you expect other people to behave, if you like. And then the last two are the interesting ones. They are, uh, what kinds of music do you like? And what kinds of humor do you like? What's your sense of humor? Um, what kind of jokes do you, do you prefer? Now, those seven dimensions, the more of those you share with somebody, and this is as true of family members as it is of friends, the more of those seven pillars you 
tick off with them, you're, you're similar on, the stronger the relationship is with that person and the more willing you are to be altruistic towards that person to help them out. Um, so these are very, very strong effects and they're part of a, a kind of mechanism underpinning friendship, which is known as homophily the, from the Greek, <laughs> uh, ancient Greek, um, love of the same, right? So okay, we prefer yeah. people who are very similar to us in the way they think and so on. And partly that because it's just easier to have a conversation with them. You don't have to explain the joke. They get it straight away, even before you finish telling the joke. You don't, you know the same streets because you grew up on them. You know, you, maybe not at the same time, but you know, do you remember so-and-so's coffee house there? Yeah, we used to drink there when we were kids and, and all that kind of thing, you know. Uh, just creates this sense of belonging to a very, very small scale community. And in part, that's actually what it's referring back to is, is an extremely small scale community. Um, in traditional small scale society, hunter-gatherer societies, that would actually be an extended family because that's about the right size. It takes you out to second cousins. Um, but of course, in the modern world, we don't have such big families. We don't have so many cousins and therefore we fill up the rest of that community with with friends and we define our friends still in terms of uh that kind of ancestral village community it's a village you know it's a, a classic village uh size for for forever it back into european history villages have been about that size and would it be professor that when, when we engage with a person first it th there is um a state of uh, exchanging information to better understand where we stand on subliminally, of course, on this on these pillars. Yes, uh, um, you know, when we first meet somebody, somebody new, um, we devote a lot of time to them. We actually make special arrangements to try and meet them a little bit more often, and we spend a lot of time talking to them, checking out where they sit on the seven pillars. And then once you've kind of figured that out and where they sort of sit on the seven pillars, are they a uh, a six pillar person to you or are they a three pillar person to you and that determines where they lie in your social network if they share six or seven pillars you want to keep them as a very very best friend and and you then make arrangements to see them as often as possible if they're a three per, a pillar person a two pillar person they're going to sit somewhere out on the edges and so you then sort of don't see them so often and they naturally slide down to the kind of position they should occupy as a two or three pillar person. And that takes place quite quickly. You know, we only spend about a month after we first meet somebody, seeing them uh, uh, many times or phoning them up or to, to kind of assess the situation. And then we kind of go, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting you in this slot. <laughs> and, and then we see them then as appropriate uh, for that slot. And then how is it affected? How is this affected by the, by, by the outside factors? Like the, the fact that like, maybe I have a project to be doing. So bring, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring in a bit of uh, the workplace in here, sure. but how is it affected by the fact that I might want to sell something to this person or to partner, or if someone's a colleague and I need to get along, how does, how, how is this relationship affected by this? Um, well, at, at one level, uh, that work um, project, if you like, is exactly one of the pillars. It's the career trajectory pillar. 
and oh, you know, you work on such and such a topic too. Oh, well, you know, we must we must have been born friends already <laughs> because we have, <laughs> yes. we have that connection, and uh, that that connection will persist as long as we have that common interest, as it were. If we move on to other projects, then um, that are less closely related, then 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 the relationship may die over over time. But at least while that happens, people are willing to see each other. And you see this in what are called com communities of practice, which have grown up in the business world, the world of administration, where people who have kind of common interests, say accountants or salespeople or uh, you know, some different speciality, <clears throat> uh, programmers or something like that, they meet up from different, um, different businesses, different organizations, and they make these little sort of common interest groups where they, somebody may give a talk or they just may meet to discuss how best to deal with these kinds of problems that we face in, in, in the business world. Um, so that's just one reflection of the seven pillars being implemented in real life and in the world of work, I think. And could we, could we be actually, uh, could we actually now that, now that we're living in, in, a, in a world where we, we, we need uh, teams to be collaborating very effectively. We, we, we live in a very fast-paced world. Everyone's very busy. We're not spending enough time uh, bonding and uh, going out for drinks. I mean, we, we need to. I know that after the pandemic, people are doing it more and more, which is great. But would, if we were speaking to an employer, for example, I want to make it a bit practical. Is, are there uh, aspects in work that you can encourage? to actually help create better relationships between team members? Sure. I, I, this is a very important question, I think, because at the end of the day, the workplace is a social world. You know, it, it's not completely anonymous um, uh, and sort of uh, um, uh, pieces of paper turn up and are put on, put on a desk. <laughs> and go home at five o'clock and, and never talk to each other. The world of work works because those people in it talk to each other and they kind of try yeah. to make arrangements and do favors for each other across departments or whatever it may be. It, it, and the, the success with which that happens, the extent to which the place of work is like a village that everybody's talking to each other and making arrangements and helping each other out, to the extent that that happens. So, the organization, doesn't matter whether it's a government department or a business or what, hospital, you name it. If people talk to each other and are, if you like, our friends get on with each other, it will work more efficiently. And if you look back in the history of um, industry in particular, back into the, over the last 100 years, 150 years, what you find with all the old, big, successful Companies, you know, people like Unilever when they were first founded as a family company, uh, Cadbury's, the chocolate people, all these these guys, um, the original founders of those companies recognized that having a happy kind of integrated workforce was good for business. And so they provided yeah. their employees with these kind of facilities they all had social clubs even the railways famously you know had their social club uh, at each sort of big station where there were a lot of employers and they would have a tennis club and you know some sports facilities of other kinds there would be 
debating clubs and social clubs with dances on Saturday nights, or maybe talks by interesting professors or, or whatever, <laughs> to create this sense of community and bonding. And, and a lot of those things, you know, after the Second World War in the 1950s, things, these kind of died, these kind of um, social facilities provided on the factory site, because these were all, you know, right, right there on the factory site. You stayed behind after work and, you know, perhaps had a, a drink or you, you went to some meeting or other or played tennis with people in the summer. So those, that kind of thing kind of died as I think people became more, maybe more family home oriented, families were smaller, communities were more broken up. So, so you didn't live near your relatives and so on, didn't have those kind of networks. Uh, the family perhaps became more dominant. And, and you have to ask whether that was unfortunate, really, in terms of how effectively and how efficiently organizations, business organizations actually work, and whether we shouldn't try to, to re reconstruct them. And, you know, a lot, a lot of modern businesses have tried to do that in, in various different ways. And, um, for example, um, uh, um, the uh, Gore-Tex or the, the, the uh, Gore company that manufactures Gore-Tex, uh, you know, insists that their factories are not more than about 200 people or, or their buildings. So, you know, never mind the factories, the administration uh, uh, blocks and so on. They all have this upper limit because they figured out very, very early on that if you keep the unit small, everybody knows everybody else. Uh, and they therefore trust each other better, they do favors for each other, the thing works more efficiently. And similarly, I think you see in, in a lot of places like um, Silicon Valley, um, some of the big IT companies there, you know, try to arrange a kind of Wednesday evening uh, beer fest <laughs> or a barbecue or something in the center of the, uh, the buildings, you know, in the open space, and of course it's very nice and sunny there, it's like Greece, you can do this thing <laughs> all through the year, um, you know, they just, everybody just goes and gathers, maybe for an hour, maybe for two hours, uh, you know, has a beer, a glass of wine, maybe, a, a, bar, a, a beef burger or whatever, you know, some food, go home, they just get the opportunity to talk to each other, and there's a very nice example, uh, I think, of S.A.B. Miller, the big South uh, African brewing giant who, who um, amalgamated, that's the S.A.B. bit, amalgamated with Miller, the big American uh, brewing giant that makes Miller Lite famously. Um, and they became one company. But S.A.B. Miller had this tradition right from the start of all their factories in the entrance uh, of the build, uh, of the main entrance into, it, uh, into the building, there is a pub. And the pub is open just for an hour maybe at five wow. o'clock or six o'clock and people just casually go and you know stop by have a beer with with people meet new people from another part of the uh the, the factory or if it's a kind of headquarters building another department in the headquarters building and get to, to build a kind of network of relationships and i know people who have worked there one of my co-authors on our new book actually worked uh, for sab miller and she said 20 years later there are still Facebook groups from those from the amazing pub, pub evenings, you know. And this is not a big deal. It's not a big investment, you know. After all, they were making beer all the time <laughs> for the company. 
So they just had it available there. Maybe it's a microbrewery or something like that. You, you know, it's a bar. Just go in, have a, you know, have a beer. People would just stop for one beer and go home. You know, just that little window to have the opportunity to 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 meet new people and to kind of bond with the other people in the group. And uh, certainly, she thinks that was part of the success of that company. You know, they they were a very very well, still are, I suppose, but in their original form having started started out as a very small brewing company became a major major uh, player on, on the international you know sort of stock market mm -hmm.